Hey, everybody, it's Andrew Claven with this week's interview with Michael Barone. Uh, the other day, I was reading a piece in The Economist called uh, When the New York Times Lost Its Way. It was by a former Times editorial page editor named James Bennett. And Bennett writes of Times reporters, the reporter's creed used to have its foundation in liberalism, the exercise of a reporter's curiosity and empathy given scope by the constitutional protections of free speech would equip readers with the best information to form their own judgments. Illiberal journalists have a different philosophy. They have seen the principle of free speech used to protect right-wing outfits and are uneasy with it. They had their suspicions of their fellow citizens' judgment confirmed by Trump's election and do not believe readers can be trusted with potentially dangerous ideas or facts. They are not out to achieve social justice as the knock-on effect of pursuing truth. They want to pursue social justice head-on. The term objectivity to them is code for ignoring the poor and weak and cozying up to power. Uh, because of this, because this illiberal journalism has infected not just the New York Times, but I think almost our entire mainstream media, it's become more and more difficult to find straightforward information. I mean, I depend on it, and I know how difficult it is. It's about five times harder than it was when I started doing this only about 10 years ago. The idea that there are such things as facts, that it's good to know the facts before you form an opinion, and that your opinion, if your opinion is in conflict with the facts, it's your opinion that should change. Those are ideas that have gone out of date with a generation so certain that it knows the hard contours of moral truth that facts can't possibly get in the way of their narratives. Well, Sylvester Stallone might say, if woke journalism is the disease Michael Barone is the cure. The man has more facts in his brain at any given moment than have appeared in the New York Times over the last 25 years. He's not just the senior political analyst uh, for the Washington Examiner. He has been co-authoring the basic text on American politics, the almanac of American politics, since its first edition in 1972, which is like 50 years. Uh, that book has been called the definitive and essential, uh, definitive and essential for anyone writing seriously about campaigns in Congress. He has this really interesting new book out, a, uh, an idea that seems to come out of nowhere but makes perfect sense once you start to read it. It's called Mental Maps of the Founders. I want to talk to him about that and about our current politics as well. Michael, it's good to see you again. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thanks for the introduction and uh, the history behind it. <laughs> well, you know, I have, to, I have to say the mental maps of the founders, when I saw that, I thought that that is a, a very strange title. But once you get into it, it makes a lot of sense. Can you explain what it is you're doing? What is a mental map? Well, we all have mental maps in our heads of uh, where we live and how to get to grandmother's house, how to get to the shopping mall and which entrance makes more sense and so forth. Some people's mental maps are very elaborate and uh, and up to date and accurate. Other people's uh, it just consist of one freeway exit and that's about all they know. Uh, but the fact is, we have a sense of our orientation. Animals have it, for goodness sakes. Um, but the uh, the way I approached this book was that uh, I've read a lot about the Founding Fathers over the years. And there have been wonderful books over the last 20 years uh, you know, by academic historians, by non-academic historians, uh, there are people that are writing uh, as amateurs. Uh, and um, as my friend Luke Cannon, the Reagan biographer, great reporter, uh, once told me, if you want to really learn about a subject, write a book about it. So I thought, what what could I write about the founding fathers as a journalist, as an amateurist, and as a person fascinated by maps? I thought, well, well 
was the geographic orientation of the founders? Uh, they were operating in a time in North America where you didn't have accurate maps of North America, uh, where the land beyond the Appalachian chains was terra incognita, um, was only very vaguely mapped. Uh, and they didn't have a concept from the start of the revolution of what kind of a country this would be. Um, when they voted for independence, it wasn't clear what the outlines of the country would be if they were successful. It wasn't clear that they'd be successful and so forth. So I decided to, uh, to write this book and to look at six of the founders, uh, as it turned out, and write essays on each of them and their geographic orientations. And I think it, the, Their different orientations helps to explain their actions uh, during their lifetime. It helped explain how they were uh, united in the quest for independence. It also uh, helps to explain some of the very great differences between the founding fathers that emerged during the uh, early republic and the, uh, after the first uh, the constitution went into effect and the first president was inaugurated in April 30th, 1789. So uh, I looked at all these factors and uh, the result is this, uh, this little book. I hope it's kind of easy and fun for people to read, but I hope that it also can provide some insights and had some very nice words written about it by, uh, among others, uh, uh, Gordon Wood, who's really one of the last living uh, of the great generation of academic historians of the um, revolution and the early republic. So, you know, I want to I talk about some of the specific founding fathers and their specific mental maps. But, but before we do, in a general sense, one of the most, to me, one of the most amazing things about the founding is that the country had, didn't have, the population was small. It was like 4 million people. It was like half of New York City. And yet this collection of men came together. It's almost unbelievable. I mean, the, the, the intelligence, the integrity, the character of these guys, they come out, they seem to come out of nowhere. And in the book, you sort of say that you reject the idea that this is divine providence, which has always been my theory, but you, but you reject that idea. Did the terrain of the country have something to do with that, do you think? Well, I think the terrain of the country had something to do with that. The cultural variety of the country had something to do with it. I don't say I reject the idea of divine providence. I don't accept it. It's just something that I don't believe in. And if you read the speeches by George Washington as he's contemplating retirement from the presidency and setting an amazing precedent by doing so, um, he talks about it as a possibility that may occur to some of his fellow citizens. And he doesn't really endorse it or not. But this is a man who had uh, appeared very prominently on bullet-strewn battlefields. Uh, it had bullets shot through his cloak. Uh, and uh, maybe he thought that, uh, or hoped that divine providence was helping to see him through some very difficult situations. Um, one of the things that uh, that emerges from this book, it seems, is to me, is that in, my, in the first chapter on Benjamin Franklin, Franklin was one of the first people that saw the colonies as a unit. In fact, they were all different colonies. They were, to the extent that they were concerned about the outside world, they, they were per, 
they were perceiving their goal as being connect their connections with England rather than their connections with each other. And they were culturally diverse. I mean, you hear today people saying, well, the United States for the first time is culturally diverse. We used to just be all white bread people and so forth. Um, that's a nonsense view. I mean, you can read the great history book of Albion Seed by the historian yeah. David Beckett Fisher, published uh, three decades ago. Um, but the founders didn't need Albion Seed to know that the uh, that the that the colonies were different and had cultural diversity. They came from a background where the great wars of the preceding centuries in Europe were fought as 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 religious wars, wars between people with different religious beliefs. And what were the colonies? The colonies, New England colonies were founded by Protestant Calvinists. The uh, Virginia was, and Carolina was founded by uh, Protestant Anglicans. Maryland was founded by a Catholic. Pennsylvania founded by a Quaker. Um, New York, which uh, founded by Dutch Reform, had all manner of people and uh, vied with uh, Newport, Rhode Island and Charleston, South Carolina to be the first colony with significant Jewish populations. So the they, they were already diverse. And it was Benjamin Franklin that suggested when the British colonies seemed to be facing an aggressive war from the French operating from Quebec to the north and invading the Ohio Valley. Um, Benjamin Franklin uh, says, we must unite or die. We must act together as colonies. And he promotes these, this plan, Albany Plan of Union at an Albany conference with the Iroquois, who were allies of the British colonists in New York. Um, he also publishes one of the first car political cartoons showing a snake uh, wobbling through and it's cut up into pieces with the initials indicating the names of the different colonies from south to north and the the, the line uh, the key line on the uh, the caption on the uh, on the cartoon is unite or die that was a new idea that was a mental map and it was fostered in part because Benjamin Franklin who was one of the few colonies uh, colonists who had uh, ties with multiple companies. He published Four Richards Almanac, which sold all up and down the Atlantic coast and even in the West Indies uh, in British colonies. Uh, he uh, franchised printing uh, operations in different uh, in different cities where he got a cut of the profits, um, became quite a rich man, retired at age 42 um, with enough money to live comfortably for the rest of his life. Uh, so Franklin is originating an idea, um, and the founders dealt in different ways with this cultural variety and with a unity of colonies that wasn't at all clear geographically. Uh, when you look at the map up and down the Atlantic coast, uh, they, they just had very different geographies and different uh, economies and different religious bases. You know, I can, I, let's talk about George Washington a little bit. You know, sometimes I find myself walking uh, on Washington Street in Georgetown, looking at the Washington Monument in Washington, D.C., and I'm struck by the incredible imprint 
this one man left on the consciousness of the country, how much of what he did became the model for what we do, uh, how for so many years until only recently, he was kind of the person you turn to to say, you know, what is an American? What does an American look like? And he was in a lot of different ways, a man of the land. He was a surveyor. He was a, a, a genuine farmer, a guy who really cared about his farm. What what mental map made him? What was in his head that that made him the kind of person he was? Well, I think his mental map goes back to his teen years. Remember that George Washington was not from one of the richest of the Virginia planter families. He was from his father's second marriage. Uh, his half-brothers from the first marriage were educated in England. Uh, Washington's father died when he was 11 years old. There was no money left for him to be uh, educated in England. Uh, and he uh, set out to become a, uh, a surveyor. He learned about surveying. He learned about geography. Uh, and he became a surveyor for Lord Fairfax. Now, Lord Fairfax was the only British member of the House of Lords who actually settled in North America. He had prosecuted an 11 years lawsuit in London to uh, certify his uh, grant of land. It was sort of an ancient grant, which he had cobbled together. Um, of all the land in, in what is now Northern Virginia and West Virginia between the Rappahannock and Potomac rivers from Chesapeake Bay to the source of the rivers in the Appalachian Mountains. Nobody knew exactly where that those rivers were uh, sourced and so forth. So Washington is hired at age 16 to work with one of Fairfax's, Lord Fairfax's nephews, to go surveying in the mountains uh, and go west of the Blue Ridge. Um, and that's his basic orientation, I think. North by Northwest, I called, um, <laughs> cribbing from the movie title. But he's he's going up the Potomac River, uh, he, and his experience as a surveyor enables him to buy his first land in the Shenandoah Valley at age eighteen. He ultimately amassed about fifty thousand acres of land that he owned. Um, he planned all these land holdings to go up the Potomac River. He saw the Potomac River as a avenue into uh, the vast North American continent. And he was sent at age 21 by the Virginia House of Burgesses, which knew about his experience surveying, um, to go uh, stop the French from moving into the forks of the Ohio, the spot where the Allegheny and Monongahela rivers joined to form the Ohio River, the heart of Pittsburgh today, of course. Uh, and Washington does that. Um, he's not successful. The French want to keep coming. His military, militarily, he's not successful. But he goes up and explores this territory. He gets within 15 miles of Lake Erie, as a matter of fact, um, covering a lot of territory that would tire many of us out if we had to drive it on the interstate roads. Um, Washington is going in the in the winter, um, landing in the Allegheny River with ice flows around him, and so forth. He's have he's going on a pretty tough time, but he knows the geography. Ultimately, the French are defeated, and Washington um, has gained that military experience, which then makes him uh, the obvious choice to become commander of the Continental Army when the, before, when the Second Continental Congress is considering um, that question. He's nominated by John Adams of Massachusetts. Washington continues to prosecute this. He promotes a canal, as 
uh, it's after his retirement as a general and then as president, uh, paralleling the Potomac River. Some of that canal was eventually built and you can hike along the uh, canal towpath. Um, he, he contemplated the idea. Uh, and I think he envisaged something like industrial America. One of his journals when he's going northwest across the various uh, Appalachian ridges, he makes a note. He says, you know, they have excellent coal here. Well, coal, of course, is one of the great um, ingredients of the Industrial Revolution, of Pittsburgh and steel making and so forth. And in less than a century after Washington is trudging through this wilderness, uh, you have uh, the emergence of the, um, of the Industrial Revolution, which provides the uh, military sinews of victory for the Union and the Civil War, and then for America as the arsenal of democracy in the 20th century. So Washington foresees this kind of America. He's not very enamored of the Southern slave societies, and particularly when he eventually goes to South Carolina as president uh, and sees these territories that were, you know, where 90% of the people living there were slaves. Um, he, doesn't, uh, he doesn't care for this at all. And of course, he makes an effort uh, by writing out his will by hand to free his slaves. Um, and at a time when he knew as a general who had resigned his commission, as a president who had declined to seek a third term, that he was setting precedents for the rest of the nation. Uh-huh. I think he was trying to set a precedent on slavery as well. Do you think that his sense, his sense of the greater land, that he was actually out there, as you say, surveying it and fighting in it, uh, do you think that that gave, contributed to his strategy to just avoid the British through most of the war, the stuff that drove John Adams crazy? when he didn't engage with them, but let them sort of burn themselves out? Well, he was, I think there was a, a military strategy and, and a political strategy by his uh, course of action during the war. As an experienced surveyor, he was a pretty good judge of terrain, and he, his judgment on that improves during the Revolutionary War. Um, he has some problems in New York City. As you know, he gets thrown out of Brooklyn. He evacuates to Manhattan, and then he's fortunate to get out of Manhattan because the British Army is there in large numbers, fortified by a huge flotilla of the Royal Navy. Um, but he continues to try to uh, surround New York. And his if you look at where his winter encampments are, um, they're in New Jersey. He occasionally goes to Connecticut. When the British occupy Philadelphia for one year, he's outside Philadelphia at Valley Forge. Um, but he's trying to make a connection between New England, which was fiercely revolutionary and from which the British had evac- basically evacuated, except for uh, one port in, in Newport, Rhode Island, um, and the lower colonies of his own native Virginia, Maryland, and the Chesapeake and Pennsylvania, where you had support for the revolution. He wanted to, New York was the key, I think, for him. He wanted to. He was constantly trying to reconquer New York because geographically it was a connection between New England and the Chesapeake colonies. Um, Without New York, you don't really have a geographically united nation to emerge after the war. And so it's only with great difficulty that the French are able to persuade him that, hey, 
This time, we're really going to provide a navy in the uh, Chesapeake Bay to surround the British uh, soldiers that are on their southern trip, uh, their southern strategy. And uh, we need you to go down and bring the American troops down to the Chesapeake and Yorktown. It turns out it works, but one of the things that's recorded is that when Washington first gets down there and sees the French Navy outside there, he literally jumps for joy. And this guy who we think of as a very uh, prim and sort of person with those clenched teeth and that kind of frown on his face um, really is, is literally transported uh, because he sees a victory at hand that was, from his point of view, anything but inevitable. Mm. Uh, but his strategy was to keep the colonies together. And so he has to learn a lot of the geography of New Jersey, and that's before they had the turnpike stops named for famous writers. <laughs> Here is a holiday gift idea that will make you the hero of the season, the gift of Genucel Skin Care. From now until Christmas, Genucel's most popular package has a special discount just for my listeners at genucel.com slash Clavin. Treat yourself and your loved ones to the absolute best skincare in the world. Those troubling forehead wrinkles, fine lines, skin redness, and even sagging jawlines will disappear right before your eyes with Genucel's most popular collection. Plus, included in every most popular package is your free hyaluronic acid serum for skin hydration. The hyaluronic Hyaluronic Acid Serum will restore your youthful appearance in less than 12 hours guaranteed or your money back. My producer, Lisa, loves Genucel. She probably has one of all of their products. She's raving always about the under-eye cream and how there is nothing like it on the market. You deserve to look and feel your best this holiday season. Go to Genucel.com slash Clavin to get this incredible holiday discount. Every order today is instantly upgraded to free express shipping. That's Genucel.com slash Clavin today. How do you spell today? Well, actually, how do you spell Clavin today? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. No idea how you spell today. I want to move on a little bit. We're talking to Michael Barone about his book uh, called The Mental Map of the Founders, The Mental Maps of the Founders. I want to move on to today's politics a little bit because you've always been such an uh, insightful observer. Uh, is, is there something, before we get to, into detail, is there something about the, our terrain today, our sense that the, the frontier is gone, that there's uh, no place to go, that this is basically what we are and we're not going anywhere. Is that, is that having an effect on our politics, the old kind of idea that we have run out of the America that was that we had in the beginning? Well, I think, you know, the, that sort of feeling of um, all the exciting things are over and we're in decline now. Um, that's a tune that's been hummed and sung to by uh, many of the uh, um, can we call them musical um, and chroniclers of American life over the years? Um, you know, if you're looking, you know, Nathaniel Hawthorne in the 1850s says, oh, my people have been in New England for 200 years and it's on the downturn once again. Um, decline is a, is, a, is a constant fear of Americans. And perhaps that's in part because we've had a rise. I mean, uh, you know, we've gone from the three plus million people that fought the revolution or fought, sometimes fought each other during the revolution in some cases, uh, to 333 million. 
And we're also grappling as we, as the founders did during the revolution with the cultural variety that I talked about earlier. Um, one of the things that, uh, that strikes me is that when you look at uh, the constitution, um, when you look at what J the Republic that James Madison in particular was trying to set up though, not all the decisions of the constitutional convention went his way and that Madison and Alexander Hamilton defend uh, successfully in the Federalist Papers persuading New York to ratify the Constitution and having an effect on other states as well to that uh, having that effect. Uh, one of their formulas that they have is, um, is a light touch. We have a federal government that still has room for the states. Um, these founders whose own history of the preceding century and more uh, that had come down to them was a history of religious wars and religious antipathies. Write a First Amendment saying that Congress shall pass uh, no law uh, regarding an establishment of religion. Uh, you had established religions all over Europe and in the British Isles. Um, they say the federal government's not going to do that because, hey, We've got so many religions already. We're not going to get into an argument about which one gets government money, but also no law regarding an establishment. And what that meant at that time was that states could have a religious established church if they wanted to or not. Uh, Virginia, uh, Connecticut and Massachusetts retained their uh, established churches till 1818 and 1833. Madison, meanwhile, and Jefferson in the 1780s were busy disestablishing the Anglican Church of Virginia, which they very strongly believed in. Um, and what they say in the First Amendment is Congress is not going to affect that one way or the other. Congress isn't going to tell Massachusetts what to do and not going to tell Virginia what to do. It's not going to tell Americans what to do about religion because we're going to have uh, a federal government with limited powers uh, and a government that's not going to um, try to make dictates of cultural variety. And I think one of the problems that we face in the 21st century and that we faced in the 20th century as well is that uh, as the federal government's powers have been increased in a variety of ways, constitutionally and just in practical terms. Um, you know, we have, we have military drafts during the world wars as well as the civil war and so forth. Um, you have questions arise about how you deal with this cultural variety. And this can promote discord. Um, the founders certainly, the founders hated the idea of political parties and when the federal government gets formed in 1789 under the Constitution, they almost immediately start creating political parties. Uh, and they did so well for, there were very serious reasons to do so. You had serious proposals on finance, uh, on setting up national debt, the national bank that were proposed by our youngest Secretary of the Treasury ever, Alexander Hamilton, and were adopted by uh, President Washington and uh, endorsed by him and adopted by the Congress uh, in large part uh, against the opposition of his Federalist co-author James Madison. Um, and you had uh, the question, you had a, a war, a world war 
from 1793 to 1815, with only slight pauses between revolutionary France and maritime Britain. France, our wartime ally, uh, Britain, our leading commercial partner by far. And um, there were going to be principal differences about that. That was a very different issue. I think one of the things that's sort of amazing about the early republic is that it stayed together. When you had very substantial numbers favored Britain, substantial numbers favored France, that owes a lot to the leadership of George Washington. It owes a lot to the fact that he, uh, though he never claimed to be a great, uh, uh, you know, intellectual, uh, and he bemoaned the fact that he was not as educated as some of the other founders, Um, nonetheless chose men with the of the very high talents like Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson uh, to be in his same cabinet, uh, to be Secretary of the Treasury and Secretary of State, and kept them there for years despite the very serious differences that they had. Um, That's a pretty amazing performance when you think about it. And, uh, you know, I do sometimes think that, uh, gee, the three million people in the... uh, early republic produced leaders of that ilk and the 333 million americans of today um are producing leaders who in the opinion of many are at least somewhat deficient uh in those talents but uh, (laughs) well well, politely that's politely put i i'm almost out of time i would love to hear what you think that this moment, which seems like to me a moment of tremendous transition, where you know parties that stood in one place now stand in the opposite place, brands are disappearing. Yeah. If, if you were to look ahead a hundred years, what do you think the entry? And again, I've only got a couple of minutes left, but what do you think the entry in the textbook of American history is going to say about this moment? Um. I think it's going to say that uh, we we had uh, we had some unusual mess ups, but it was nothing like the 1850s uh, <laughs> that produced the Civil War of the 1860s uh, and produced uh, a death toll of what 600,000 people at that time, which is the equivalent of something like I don't know three to four million people today, if you can imagine three or four million Americans being killed in battle. Uh, in a civil war. Um, They will say that we've had our periods of eruption uh, in history and uh, some uh, very uh, distinct, you know, and and that we've had a difference in quality of leaders at different times uh, that, uh, you know, the, uh, the Constitution guarantees us a democratic result. It doesn't guarantee us a, a, a good result. (laughs) I sometimes say, according to what your earlier introduction said, the Constitution guarantees us a free press, not a fair one. Um, but uh, the, uh, you know, I, I, it's it's going to be perhaps a time of troubles, um, and uh, I think it's going to one that uh, perhaps will persuade later groups of Americans that uh, the. Constitution's creation of a federal republic with a sort of light touch central government was a pretty good idea. And if we stray a long way from that uh, without good reason, uh, we pay a price for it. Uh, and that 
um, you have periods of where we get extraordinarily good leaders and periods where we get, um, I won't say exactly the opposite, uh, but those whose talents are perhaps not as great uh, and that we seem to be going in the uh, 2010s and 2020s uh, in that latter direction. <laughs> the author. I still think you know, that we'll have a United States of America. We'll have uh, set, uh, operating under the Constitution, um, misinterpreted here and there, uh, perhaps, and, um, and that we'll probably still have Democratic and Republican parties, uh, though the, the oldest and third oldest parties in the world, um, but they may look a little different from the way they look today. Well, that's a reassuring assessment, especially coming from someone who knows as much as you do. Michael Barone, the, the name of the book is Mental Maps of the Founders, a genuinely different and original look at the founders. Michael, thanks. It's really good to see you again, and I appreciate uh, the conversation. Thanks. Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for having me. I appreciate it. All right. Good to know we may still be here in 100 years. We will be back uh, next Friday with the Claven Christmas special. I hope you will join us then.